Confidential gets started right after this message. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. In economic relationships with the EU. So, thank you again, Madam President, for your personal friendship, for your partnership, and above all, your leadership. All of this is bringing the European Union and the United States even closer together, and that's a win for all of us. So I thank you all, and I'm now going to yield the podium to the president. We'll pull this out. U.S. President Joe Biden visited Brussels earlier this year, speaking alongside European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Mr. President, dear Joe, your presence here in Brussels this week uh, at the NATO summit at the G7 and at our European Council sends a very powerful message to the world. The transatlantic partnership stands stronger and more united than ever. The last few years have seen something of a rebound in EU-US relations after the tumultuous Trump years. But as America goes to the polls, many in Brussels are looking on nervously. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Political's Chief Brussels Correspondent. And this week on EU Confidential, we're taking a look at relations between the EU and the United States. The midterm elections are happening in America next Tuesday, and many in Brussels and around the continent are watching closely to see if the balance of power in the US Congress will shift from the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives and Senate to a Republican majority. I know there's a lot at stake in these midterm elections, from our economy the safety of our streets, to our personal freedoms. But there's something else at stake. Democracy itself. In this episode, we'll unpack the potential impact these elections could have on European policy, from concerns over trade relations to funding and support for Ukraine. Later in the podcast, you'll hear from experts like Max Bergman, Director of the Europe Programme at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., I think Washington has been talking out of both sides of its mouth for much of the past two decades, where on the one hand, you will hear you know, folks at the White House and other places that focus on kind of the broader U.S. national security portfolio and say, of course, we need Europe to do more, to take care more of its defense. We need to move more military assets to Asia. But then the folks that work on Europe really like that America is indispensable to Europe and want America to be indispensable to Europe and get really concerned if the suddenly the focus of defense is at the EU level, not at NATO, where the U.S. has a veto, where the U.S. is very present. But first, let's bring in our political panel to take a look at what's at stake for Europe as America goes to the polls. I'm joined by Ryan Heath, political editorial director in New York. Hey, Suzanne. And Barbara Moons, our senior trade correspondent in Brussels, who's here in the studio with me. Hi, Suzanne. 
Great, Ryan, Americans are going to the polls next week, as we've heard. And look, let's bring us up to speed on where things stand with this election next Tuesday. Well, the big thing about any American election is it's never ending. So actually, 27 million people have already voted and it's expected to be something at or beyond record turnout. So there's interest, but there's a lot of different motivating factors for the people turning out. And what we expect is that there will be a backlash against the Biden administration, which is typical uh, for a new president two years into office, and that that's driven by cost of living concerns. And so the things that people outside of America are often thinking about in terms of the state of democracy or political violence, they're not necessarily the top of mind issues for voters here. And Biden has a very big juggling act. He's got to try and give serious, credible warnings about political violence. He's desperately trying to hold on to the Senate, uh, but he can't turn into an alarmist in the way that some of his opponents have been operating. So it's a very difficult job uh, to, for the Democrats to try and keep any control of Congress here. Because earlier in the summer, there seemed to be a bit of light at the end of the tunnel for Democrats. There had been the Supreme Court ruling on abortion law and Roe v. Wade that was first broken by our political colleagues in Washington, D.C. And this seemed to have given Democrats a bit of a momentum going into this election. But that seems to have faded in the last few weeks. Uh, yes, overall, that's true. But because it's such a polarised environment, um, the factors you've pointed out are helping some Democrats in some races. For example, it's likely to allow the Democrats to hold on to their Georgia Senate seat uh, because the Republican candidate there has let's say, got a messaging problem on abortion in that it appears that he's paid for several abortions uh, from female friends whilst being totally opposed to them on the campaign trail. And that is not the typical state of affairs in Georgia, and the Democrats should be able to do well there. However, you've also got people who are very concerned about crime. You have a lot of conspiracy theories that are in circulation, and, and inflation is a real issue. So the Republicans are being quite effective in other races uh, in, in stirring up sentiment around that. And it's a race to see who gets the most diehard supporters to the polls. And what's at stake here is control of the two Houses of Congress, the House of Representatives with 435 seats and the US Senate with 100 senators. Not all those seats are up for grabs. But what kind of implications will this have, both on US politics, but for, for our listeners here on the EU, if we see control of the two Houses of Congress, or indeed one of them, go to Republicans? They're currently under Democratic control. Well, it's been very fine edge control for the Democrats so far. It's a 50-50 Senate and Vice President Kamala Harris gets to issue a tie-breaking vote. And that means the Democrats do get some of what they want. They've succeeded in getting this big infrastructure uh, bill passed, otherwise known as the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a lot of climate projects involved in it. And they've been able to get a lot of judges appointed. Because the Senate votes on that. The Senate has to approve these judicial nominees. Exactly. Um, but if the Republicans control one or both, both houses, you start to lose the ability to control the levers of government, whether that's money or putting people into positions. And then in foreign policy terms, there are some questions about how much support a Republican-controlled Congress would give to Ukraine. There's been talk from the potential replacement for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker, a man called Kevin McCarthy, that there'd be no more blank checks. So there's question marks there. We also know Republicans are not keen on international climate agreements. They're not working out so well anyway, but to have uh, the US walk back some of its commitments on the global stage in terms of climate is not going to make them popular in Europe and is obviously not going to be great for the climate. 
And of course, one of the concerns here talking to people is, is this a harbinger of what's going to happen at the next presidential election? Could we see a return of Donald Trump to the White House? Now, he's he's giving a rally in Pennsylvania on Saturday. We will also hear from uh, President Joe Biden and the former President Barack Obama also campaigning in that key swing state this weekend. What has Donald Trump been saying? Do you think this is giving him more momentum for his own run in 2024? All the signs are that Donald Trump does want to run in 2024. And the surprise has been that he's held off this long in announcing it. Some Republicans would be very unhappy if he interfered in the midterm elections at this point. Uh, And the surprise is that he's actually followed that advice. So it's clear that he wants to run. He will face a challenger probably in Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who some people see as a more disciplined version of Trump. So in no way different ideologically, but a little bit more on message and a bit more strategic about how he wants to achieve his aims. So you may see the two of them uh, sort of face off in the Republican primary in 2024. And the fact that the Republicans are doing well in this election does not mean that Joe Biden or another candidate can't beat Trump in 2024. It's a different ballgame there where you have more people on the ballot. Democrats tend to turn out in larger numbers in a presidential election cycle. And Trump himself generates backlash. His own coalition has been shrinking. It doesn't mean Joe Biden is a winner and that it's going to be easy. But Trump is a great motivating force for Democrats and other people worried that the country has lost its moderate tendencies, that it's not the stable force in the world that it used to be. And as we know, Donald Trump did lose the last election to Joe Biden. And and of course, there are question marks about Biden's own intentions in 2024. But look, thanks for that, Ryan. So, Barbara, relations are not great at the moment between Washington and Brussels when it comes to trade in particular. We saw US Trade Representative Catherine Tai travel halfway around the world this week to attend an EU foreign affairs meeting in Prague. What is going on with this? The main thing is the Inflation Reduction Act that Ryan was just talking about, which is a huge political domestic win for Biden. But it has really upset trading partners from the US. So not just EU, but also Japan and South Korea, because it gives an advantage. It gives subsidies to electrical vehicles and other necessities um, needed for the green transition to products made in the US and in North America. And so obviously that upsets European car makers and and it has everything to become a major trade dispute between the US and the EU. Both sides clearly want to avoid that just because with Biden, the relationship have gone back on track. But the EU has made very clear that it's too big to ignore. Yeah, and I mean, what was Thai trying to achieve by flying to Prague this week? Did she achieve anything on this? She could have perfectly attended this virtually, obviously, like we all um, used to do. I think she really wanted to kind of signal to the European counterparts, like, we understand your concerns, we're working on it, Um, we're trying to find a solution. Brussels and Washington have set up a task force to try to resolve the issue. At the same time, this is something that comes from Congress, which is domestically very sensitive, so it's not easy to to find a way out, but they're trying. Um, The idea now is that because of the midterms, it will be hard to do something in, in the short term, but in the next coming weeks, they hope to find some sort of compromise that will kind of appease Brussels, especially because with the war in Ukraine going on, obviously the West wants to kind of 
show this united front and they cannot really they don't want to get down um, into trade disputes at the World Trade Organization for mm. example because they've, they've said that might be the next stage I mean we've been talking on the podcast the last few weeks about both tensions between France and Germany and also about the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz controversial visit to China uh, that's happening this week but on this issue it Macron the French President Scholz have been united they have both come out against what they see as unfair competition by the yeah, US. Exactly. So France has been the most vocal as it tends to be on, on these issues. So um, they have said that if the US is pursuing this, then maybe the Europeans should think about doing the same. And it's true that obviously for Germany, this is a key issue, right? It's their car industry. It has a lot of trickle-down effects to countries surrounding Germany, other EU countries, but especially for Germany, this is key. So on this issue, they are very much united in trying to signal to the US, this is not okay. This is not how you treat um, your major trading partner. And we need to find a solution to work this out. I mean, you've been covering trade for a long time here uh, for Politico Brussels. When Biden was elected, I was in the US reporting at the time, there was all this talk about renaissance in, in US-EU relations, particularly when it comes to trade. I mean, do you think that has been the case? And, and there's, a, there's a definite worry now about a, a possible you know, Trump presidency 2.0 or a change in control in Congress? Or have trade relations not been really as rosy as, as we may have been led to believe? Mm. I think that in general, when it comes to transatlantic relationship, everybody hoped that under Biden, you know, everything would be great again. And then it was soon, it was very clear that a lot of the underlying things that um, led to Trump's action were actually still there. And so when it comes to trade, um, a lot of issues have been resolved. For example, the subsidies on Arn Airbus Boeing, on steel, but they've been resolved in ways that it was more kicking the can down the road. It was kind of making sure that at this point there wouldn't be um, major spectacles coming out of it. But the real issues are still there in the sense that both, size of the Atlantic want to be major economic players. And sometimes that leads to more subsidies, more protectionism, also vis-a-vis each other. And so the way to kind of make sure that at least the two sides would coordinate was this establishment of the Trade and Technology Council. And really the sign there was, we're not, we're going to pursue our own strategy, but at least we can talk to each other so that we know we work together, especially when it comes to future industries, future standards, etc. And so that, I think, is a key moment to to look out for in the coming weeks as the next meeting is on um, December 6th to see that in which sense has this new trade dispute kind of overshadowed this upcoming meeting of the Trade and Tech Council, of which everybody says now we need to actually see results of these meetings instead of just a, a talking shop. I mean, that council was set up as a forum to kind of thrash out disputes. Um, but as you say, this meeting in early December is now going to be key. Of course, one of the um, the characteristics of the last few years in transatlantic policy has been the strong relationship between President Biden in particular and his administration and the European Commission head, Ursula von der Leyen. We wrote about this a few weeks ago in Politico in a, a cover story called The Paradox of Ursula von der Leyen about how the very characteristics that um, have made her the go-to person for the Biden administration, her kind of top-down management style, her ability to get things done, her quick movement on the sanctions policy were kind of the characteristics that some within the commission feel alienated by. Um, But look, that relationship definitely, I think it's fair to say, between President Biden himself and leaders like von der Leyen has been stronger than it was, say, between Trump and the EU figures. Yeah, I think definitely in comparison to the Trump administration, obviously it is much better. Um, Like you said, especially von der Leyen's chief of staff, 
Staff Right has an excellent reputation in Washington. And the task force that is now being set up to resolve this trade dispute is led by van der Leyen's chief of staff, which is probably not a coincidence. So there is obviously a lot of improvement vis-a-vis the Trump years. But you do see, and this trade dispute really shows that how fragile that can be and how easily you you again go back to you know classic trade disputes and it's a big if but you know what if the war in ukraine hasn't happened would we already be at the world trade organization or not not in at this point it's very much in everyone's interest that the west stays united and both sides are very conscious of that but at the end of the day, a solution has to be found. The EU has made that very clear. Yeah, and as as we know, I mean, Biden did not change, did not shift that much from the Trump years in terms of, you know, his stance on China, for example, and the trade implications of that. So look, let's see what next Tuesday brings. Uh, and thank you very much for joining us, Barbara, and to Ryan. You're welcome. A pleasure as always. And we'll have more about the US view on Europe, specifically when it comes to defence, right after this, with Max Bergman of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. Earlier this week, political Sarah Wheaton sat down with Max Bergman from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. It's a non-partisan think tank focused on national security. Here in Europe, uh, whether Europe likes it or not, its security or its, its hard power relies on the United States. But there's been a lot of talk about, you know, how things have changed from Trump to Biden. Some people here feel like maybe not as many changes as they would like to see. Um, you know, broadly under the Biden administration, are there changes in the past year or so that Europeans should be aware of? Well, I think there was a re- real change, obviously, between Trump and Biden and the value that Biden places on the transatlantic alliance. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. I think the Biden administration has been different than the Obama administration, for instance, in viewing the European Union as a really important partner. And I think that that is seen through a China lens, frankly. 
there's been a lot of attention and talk about the trade and tech council between the US and European Union. But I think that was uh, agreed to by the Biden administration because I think the US sees it as really valuable. So I think there's a sense that, that the United States really needs to work with the EU when it comes to these trade, tech, and regulatory issues. I think, though, on defense, there's been less of a shift. And I think what we've seen since the war is really that America's back. And I think that has benefits, that the United States is more engaged in Europe. You're seeing a lot of U.S. visitors. There's more U.S. troops in Europe. But on the other hand, the same issues of European dependence on U.S. forces and on the United States for its security uh, have some ways deepened uh, since the war, which I, I wouldn't necessarily have expected. And I think there's some concern that increases in European defense spending aren't actually going to reduce some of the reliance on the United States. And my concern is that when we look ahead in the months and years ahead, as the U.S. sort of shifts towards China, that this will sort of be seen as the high watermark of transatlantic relations and that Europe uh, will not have used this moment to kind of reduce some of their exposure when it comes to defense and security. We'll be increasingly relying on the United States that increasingly believes that Europe should be doing more to take care of itself. Mm -hmm. Well, indeed, an ongoing issue here in Europe is this debate over whether it should be more capable of, of defending itself. Um, we call this strategic autonomy around here. And, you know, do you think it's possible for Europe to achieve that? And it sounds like you're saying Washington would like to see that happen to some extent. Well, yes, I do think it is possible that Europe could achieve this. And I think Washington has been talking out of both sides of its mouth for much of the past two decades, where on the one hand, you will hear you know, folks at the White House and other places that, that focus on kind of the broader U.S. national security uh, portfolio and say, of course, we need Europe to, to do more, to take care more of its defense. We need to move more military assets to Asia. But then the folks that work on Europe, that work on it day to day, really like that America is indispensable to Europe and want America to be indispensable to Europe and get really concerned if the suddenly the focus of defense is at the EU level, not at NATO, where the U.S. has a veto, where the U.S. is uh, very present. And so I think the United States doesn't have a coherent strategy toward Europe and hasn't really thought strategically about Europe much over the last 20 years. Uh, and we haven't really thought about what a Europe looks like with the European Union being what it is today. And we still kind of have an outdated conception, I think, uh, of Europe. So, and, and that said, I think Europeans are also getting their way themselves by not having, you know, you have 27 different ministries of defense, 27 different pentagons with their own military industrial complexes, own national defense industries. It makes it hard to coordinate. So what we have is kind of a, a mess, to be honest. Uh, and we want to talk really strongly about NATO and how allied we are, and that's true. But then when you look under the hood, you see real problems. Uh, and I think that's, we really need to start focusing on how to address those problems. And what's, what's the best venue for that discussion, do you think? Well, I think it's, I think it's both. I think the outdated U.S. view that the EU is a threat to NATO and that we must avoid duplication at all costs uh, strikes me as very narrow. Yes, duplication is not great. But, you know, I worked with the Pentagon a lot when I was at the State Department. <laughs> there is a ton of duplication. And duplication sort of exists for a reason. You don't want to have gaps and seams. And so there are certain roles and missions that are totally the mandate of NATO. On the other hand, I think there's a real role for the EU in a lot of bottom-up coordination when it comes to defense. Uh, getting European defense industries to be more aligned, trying to coordinate procurements and spending, things that NATO doesn't really deal with. Uh, and then I think the other thing that the United States needs to focus on is what assets do we provide that Europe doesn't have? So these these things called enabling capabilities, they're vital, like air tankers, uh, air transport, 
ISR, the intelligence surveillance uh, and reconnaissance, so so high altitude drones and things like that, missile defense that are kind of beyond the procurement of abilities of any individual European country. And so that's where I think the EU could play a role in really sponsoring a collective effort. And the United States should insist upon that. And I'm really surprised over the last six months, the United States hasn't gone to the EU and said, look, you borrowed for COVID because there was a major crisis. You have 800 billion euros that you borrowed. Why not borrow for defense that you're facing this major crisis? And I think that's something that I think the United States and Joe Biden missed an opportunity when he went to the European Council summit back in March and, and didn't make that demand. You know, broadly, I hear frustration from some people here in Brussels who feel like Americans are lecturing them. And you and I are both American. Um, uh, you were a speechwriter for John Kerry when he was America's top diplomat. So based on that experience, what's your sense of how well the two sides of the Atlantic are communicating right now? And is it possible to prod without seeming like you're preaching? You know, the U.S. does have, an, have a habit of going around the world and, and sort of lecturing certain countries. But I think in this case that I think the relations are stronger than they've you know maybe been since since in the last two decades, and and I think the relationship is quite strong. I do think that one of the things one of the obstacles for the United States when it comes to engaging Europe is that there is this sense that the United States is looking out for its own narrow sort of parochial economic interests. The United States is sort of putting arms sales above all else. And as someone who worked on the arms sales portfolio some at the, at the State Department, I can tell you that the U.S., when it comes to arms sales uh, in every region of the world, is incredibly rigorous, says no to U.S. defense companies all the time. But we don't really do that in Europe because we don't have human rights concerns. We don't have technology concerns. And so we sort of oftentimes uh, just support arms sales. What it reflects is the lack of a broader strategy or vision for what we want to see happening in Europe. Um, where, uh, to me, I think the United States really needs to go back to its sort of post-World War II past, where to, to steal a quote from Konrad Adenauer, the former German chancellor, who once remarked that Americans were the best Europeans, i.e. the United States wants Europe to be Europe, to act as one, to be incredibly strong, and oftentimes much more so than many individual European countries with very parochial national interests. And I think the United States needs to get back to that, where one of our major goals and strategies is for Europe as a whole to be stronger. And I think if we approach Europe with that in mind and saying, what is in the interest of Europe, the European Union overall, we will not necessarily be seen as lecturing, but be seen as sort of prodding in a, in a pro-European direction that will gain a lot of support. Now, also some people and parties and countries will, will chafe at that, but that always happens. So I, I think that's where the United States really needs to shift, that we need to view ourselves as the best Europeans and really wanting Europe to be a stronger partner on the international stage, because that's ultimately, I think, in, in America's interest. Yeah. And we heard a little a little uh, pointer in there to quote um, one of their own back at them. So uh, a little yeah. a little speech writing tip in there. Um, <laughs> you and I are speaking about a week before the midterm elections in the United States. We've heard some signs from uh, some Republican leaders that, that support for Ukraine might be less automatic than it has been up to this point. What's your take? So uh, I, I think the election uh, will raise certain questions about how much the United States can provide Ukraine going forward. I mean, if you look at how the dollar amounts allocated to support Ukraine over the last year, I mean, it's almost, it's I think, more than $50 billion 
roughly the size of the State Department budget. I mean, it is absolutely astronomical. So I think there are some concerns whether the U.S. can maintain that level of financial support. The major issue, look, is that if Republicans take the House, then what will happen is that even if Republicans support in general uh, supporting additional funding for Ukraine, you know, if you have a must-pass piece of legislation, the way Washington politics work is that the Republicans will attach certain things that will be really hard for the Biden administration to swallow, maybe abortion restrictions on U.S. foreign assistance abroad, other things like that, that then make it a, a much harder piece of legislation for the Biden administration to get to pass. And then it also raises the stakes for progressives. You know, if you had told me a year ago that progressives would uniformly support a proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, I would say probably not. But they have. They've all supported unanimously assistance to Ukraine, but they also haven't had to give anything up for that. They haven't had to make certain trade-offs with their values. And so that's where you could start. Uh, see The sausage-making process of getting the legislation through could be much more difficult when Democrats don't control both branches of, of Congress. So I think that's something to watch out for. And I think that's we could see some additional activity from the Biden administration in the lame duck period, uh, period between the election and when the new Congress comes in in January to try to pass kind of uh, additional appropriations bill to get them a lot of money that can make it last for a while. But I do think overall, there is strong bipartisan support. And if the chips come down and Ukraine is like, we need 10 billion more to sustain this fight, I think the United States will be able to find it, whether from Congress or by reallocating funding within the Pentagon. You know, at this point in the war, what is your key takeaway from Ukraine? And like, if if you have a mentee or a protege, like, what's the thing that you're telling that person? Like, always remember this. I think Europeans consistently underestimate their own strength. And I think as a result, the world underestimates the strength of Europeans and the strength of Europe. And I think what we've seen in this conflict is how strong Europe can be. And that when you threaten the European project, when you threaten Europe, when you threaten the European Union, Europe responds. And this starts from the sanctions response from Europe, I think was caught everyone in Washington by surprise. I was in, you know, privy to some of the kind of conversations that were happening and everyone was worried about dragging the Europeans along. Right now, what you have is Europe continuing to update sanctions that are getting ahead of where the United States actually wants Europe to be and feels sort of uncomfortable. I think oil sanctions are are case in point. And I think Europe has, you know, if you had told people that Europe was going to radically decouple from Russian gas, uh, they would be shocked and say, no way that could happen. But that's what's happening. So I think that the strength of Europe to act as one when challenged is something that we, um, we need to recognize, that Europe is an incredibly strong partner. It's just that when Europe does its foreign policy decision making, it does so out in the open because it's 27 different countries that are all leaking to the press, to you all. Uh, And so we get to see it. You guys don't get to see the kind of back and forth memos that are circulated between the State Department and Pentagon and the White House and Energy Department, uh, where no one's on the same page until suddenly they are. Uh, So, you know, we have a similarly messy internal governmental process, but you have a far more complex, opaque uh, foreign policy process that always makes Europe seem divided when in fact it really isn't. All right. I think I think that answer is going to be very well received, actually, in the EU confidential uh, <laughs> listenership. Max Bergman, thanks so much for joining us from Washington. Hope we can catch up with you here in Brussels sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Sarah for bringing us that discussion with Max Bergman. And that's it for this week. Be sure to follow EU Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, please do take a moment to leave us a rating or even a review. Also, on Wednesday, November the 9th, 
Ryan and I will be discussing the outcome of the midterm elections in a special Politico Pro briefing call, which is open not only to our pro subscribers, but to everyone. It's at 4pm Brussels time. You can find more details in our show notes. And if you want to get in touch with us directly on the podcast, you can send us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thanks this week to our production colleague, Julia Peloni, our editor, James Randerson, and our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. And thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.